Hey, everybody. It's Michelle. And I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication. And you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to, to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Welcome back, folks, for an incredibly special pre-ASHA 2021 convention episode of First Bite. Y'all, I am humble pie and excited about today's episode because today we are making history. 
All right. So today's guest is none other than Memory Gosa, PhD, CCC, SLP, BCSS, who is a world-renowned pediatric speech-language pathologist, board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and associate professor and chair in the Communicative Disorders Department at the University of Alabama. My stepdaddy would say, roll tide. (laughs) And y'all, pinch yourselves as she has served as the chair of the inaugural 2021 Pediatric Normal and Disordered Feeding and Swallowing Topic Committee. Can I get it all, man? Okay, so let me translate that. Y'all, this is the first time ever. Seven weeks after we obtained access to the new PFD ICD-10 codes, the annual ASHA convention will host its very first PEDS feeding and swallowing track. This is monumental. And so I am having a complete full disclosure fangirl moment over here because y'all, I got to serve as a volunteer for that committee and I was just starstruck on the Zoom meetings. I was slack jawed, wide eyed, handshaken. Definitely mispronounced multisyllabic words because I do that when I'm excited. But y'all, some of the greats, actually it was all the greats, they were there. They were part of this planning committee. And when I say on episode after episode after episode that you are ASHA, and if you want to see a change in our profession, then put your big girl panties and your big boy britches on, well, and you got to step it up and volunteer. That's what we did. We volunteered our time so that evidence-based practice and advocacy occurs. And y'all, you are ASHA and you can do this too. And Dr. Gosa, well, she she definitely made sure we have it because have you seen the program planner? Okay, I am in awe that after we concluded planning and volunteering, I asked her if she would come on and she said yes. So here she is on first bite to walk us through the history of peds dysphagia, how the PFD world came to be, to highlight trends in evidence-based treatment, to tell us where the trends are going, and to tease out a little bit of what we can tune into tomorrow. I do believe the convention starts tomorrow, so heads up. But here we are. So longest introduction ever. Dr. Gosa, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you and to talk through some things and and what we've experienced over the past few months getting ready for ASHA and to talk through pediatric dysphagia and now pediatric feeding disorder. I am thrilled to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. This was eek. (laughs) I'm just so happy. Okay. All right. So you have touched so many lives through your work, through your research, through leading a department, but Can you just kind of take us back to the beginning? What made you want to be a speech pathologist in the first place? Oh, sure. So I was a pre-med declared person in my undergraduate studies and through a number of different circumstances and things that came about, decided that I didn't want to go to school for quite that long, which is funny because then you end up going to school for a long time anyway, when you're passionate about the things that inspire you. So anyway, I changed out of pre-med and wanted to do something where I could help people. I wanted to be involved in health care. And so went down the, the track of communicative disorders. I actually did my undergraduate degree here at the University of Alabama. So that's where that came about. And then 
I did my graduate work at Ole Miss, my clinical work at Ole Miss. And, you know, I'm getting older now. And so 20 years ago, when I was doing my graduate work, there wasn't a dysphagia class. I remember that we had a couple seminars on dysphagia, but that was really about it. And I thought I wanted to do child language. I really, that's what I've enjoyed the most in my graduate studies. And my CFY was in early intervention in Memphis, Tennessee through Lebonner Children's Hospital. I worked in Lebonner Early Intervention and Development. It's called LEAD. And so that was my first job. And so I was eager and went out in my CF to do all of the early intervention language work and got into parents or, you know, into families' homes and started working with parents and, and what's important to you. What is it that you want for your child through this early intervention experience? And, you know, so many of them just didn't mind that their children weren't talking yet. That really wasn't the focus. They were most concerned about the fact that their child had a feeding tube or they had the limited opportunity for oral intake. And that's what was most important to the families that I worked with. And so it was a bit of a trial by fire because we didn't have a class, you know, in pediatric dysphagia. And we had had seminars on dysphagia, mostly from adult populations. But I was so fortunate to have done one of my clinical rotations at Labonner Children's Hospital there in Memphis in their inpatient setting. And so there I had a chance to work with clinicians that were trained by Dr. Lisa Newman. She was a pediatric dysphagia specialist at the time and had set up the inpatient and outpatient feeding and swallowing program there at Labonner. So I had mentors that I could turn to to say, hey, this is what the families are interested in. This is what they want to work on. And I had had some clinical experience and then had great mentorship through readings and continued conversation about what it needed to look like in an outpatient setting for feeding and swallowing. So did I answer your question or did I just go off on a strange tangent? No, this is perfect. Okay, so then my next question, where did the PhD come into? And did you focus on dysphagia then for the PhD research? Yes. So I did early intervention for a little more than a year. And then a job came open on the inpatient side at the hospital. And because I had been doing mostly feeding and swallowing for that first year. It was an easy transition into the inpatient realm where that became most of what I did. And so interestingly enough, the PhD came about because I, after I had my own children, I really began, I think, to understand more fully what it means when you ask families to change how they provide you know, nutrition for their kids. And yeah. so that experience of having my own children and starting to think about feeding not from just a a medical lens and a you know this is this is the safest option and thinking about it more holistically in terms of this food is not you know just nutrition food is love food is how you interact with newborns, food, feeding them is, you know, part of how you show your love and affection for your family. So I think that just became more salient. And so I really began to think about what it would mean if I was having to change and change up the way that I was feeding my children. And it really put me back into the literature for what evidence do we have to really support this monumental thing that I'm asking this family to do. And so that is really what sort of started my mind 
back towards a PhD because the further and further I went into the literature, the more I was looking for the evidence to support the things that I thought were best practice. I was coming up short. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was not being the keyword there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, the University of Memphis, you know, is there in Memphis and, and we had a good relationship with Dr. Deborah Suter, who was at the University of Memphis at that time. And she was their dysphagia specialist. And our department had already contacted her to say, hey, we are, you know, interested in doing some clinical research. These are the questions we have. Here's some of the data we've collected. And she was instrumental in helping my department that I worked for really look at some clinical questions. And so as I was doing that, she said, you know, why don't you go and do a PhD? This seems to be something that you're really interested in. You have some good clinical experience in this area that would help shape questions. She's also a clinical researcher. Mm -hmm. So even though she wasn't specific for pediatrics, she was an excellent resource for us and really was the first one to bring that up because that was not on my radar. That I mean, I was really happy with the job that I had. I loved working at Le Bonheur. I loved being a clinician. So research wasn't necessarily on my radar, but she brought it up. And through experiences that we had going to Dysphagia Research Society and presenting the results of our projects that we had worked on together at the hospital, that became more and more of something that I thought, well, maybe this is something that I could do. And then I would have the skill set to continue to do this type of work independently. And many years later, I finally finished that PhD. It was a long go of it, but it was, that's where that came from. So yes, in my PhD program, I did focus on specialization of the human upper air digestive tract for functions of voicing and swallowing. So I was fortunate to work with not only Dr. Suter, but also Dr. Joel Kahane, who was an anatomist by his training and a speech pathologist and had spent his career studying the larynx and all of the intricacies of that and the specialization of the larynx for supporting functions for swallowing and for voicing. And so he ended up being my primary mentor in my PhD program. It's literally goals. Yes. Yeah. He was, yeah. it was great that, that he was there and he was willing to take on sort of a non-traditional PhD student in the sense uh-huh. that I was still working. I mean, I had a uh-huh. family and my son was born the first year that I was in PhD study. So I had children, I had a husband, I had a job, I had lots of responsibilities that don't necessarily always um, equal someone who can take on a PhD program, but I was so fortunate that he and the faculty at the University of Memphis were willing to work with me through all of that so that I was able to complete a program that was meaningful for me and prepared me to do research. Can I just tell you, this is the third message I have heard this week that I need to step it up. So on a very, very deep and personal level. Well, you just published a book, so I'm not sure <laughs> yeah, what but, else you might uh, be doing there. Uh, well, one day, one day a PhD. In the meantime, yeah. can I just say, we established the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing clinic at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina. And it's the first clinic in all of South Carolina at a university level. To treat yeah. kids dysphagia and swallowing. So, yay! <laughs> yes, congratulations. Because that's really, I mean, think about, I'd said it was 20 years ago, and I know that that is a long time ago, but we've gone from 
we didn't necessarily have specific classes in dysphagia at the graduate level to now it's definitely a class in most programs. Now our university and others have incorporated a pediatric specific focused class and we have clinical training programs within the universities now that are teaching students in-house the how fundamentals of how to do this. That's, yes. that's amazing progress in 20 years, I think. Yes. Not that we can't do more, but we are certainly moving in the right, in the direction. right direction. Jinx. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, wow. Okay. So can you, I did Old Dominion for undergrad, finished mm-hmm. in December of 05, worked as an SLT because Virginia didn't have an SLPA. It was an SLT, which is kind of cool. And then graduated with my grad degree in December of 09 and promptly got one smashingly delightful divorce. Uh, That was uh the greatest decision ever. And then subsequently met my soulmate. But I say Uh all that because 06 and 09 weren't that long ago. Right. And I had dysphagia classes taught by excellent professors. Shout out to Dr. O'Donohue at James Madison. Oh my gosh, brilliant, brilliant. Uh-huh. And, um, yes, but we only had one or two nights in peds dysphagia. And it was it was more just like on typical development in utero, craniofacial, that component. But can you talk to us about kind of where does the history in our field, where does it really start diverging from adult dysphagia? And can you kind of give us the history of that? I mean, I can can tell you what I know, and I'm sure there's more to it than everything that I might be able to to talk about. But for sure, from the very beginning of a, of knowing about pediatric specific dysphagia, Dr. Joan Arvidson and Dr. Maureen Leftengreif were certainly part of that conversation. Dr. Leftengreif is at Johns Hopkins University Hospital System, and then. Dr. Arvidson was at or is at the University of Wisconsin, I think they're in Madison or it may be Milwaukee. But, you know, those two names were certainly publishing about, writing about, speaking about the nuances of working with infants and children that have dysphagia from the very beginning. And then Dr. Bosma was writing and publishing on the changes in anatomy and physiology that we see in infants and children, you know, as they develop and the changes in the head and neck space and how that influences feeding and swallowing. We also had influence from some of the radi- early radiologists that were also writing about radiographic study in this population. And then I told you about Dr. Newman. Dr. Lisa Newman was also a speech pathologist, is a speech pathologist who was working in this area early on and helped to shape my interest in this area as well. And so they have always been part of Dysphagia Research Society as far as as I've known. I think as the medicine, pediatric medicine has advanced and we Mm -hmm. have seen huge changes in the landscape for pediatrics in terms of survival rates for infants that are born with extremely complex medical conditions that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, five years ago. Five years ago, we might not have had, you know, the technology and the expertise to save those children as they are not only surviving early childhood, but thriving into late childhood and adolescence. I think that the types of dysphagia and the recognition that certain conditions influence feeding development has really come to the forefront. And we've had to have clinicians 
trained better with more expertise in this area. And so I think then it comes full circle as clinicians are working with those children, like like I had experience with, and then looking into the evidence to support what we're doing and coming up sometimes shorthanded for that, it drives interest and it drives research and it points us towards what needs to be done. So we've had terrific forerunners in this field that laid terrific groundwork there. And then I think now that there are more opportunities to work with children um, that have feeding and swallowing issues and certainly more clinics like the one that you have started, you know, that that provide opportunity to train, we're going to continue to see that this area grow. Yes. It's been very humbling to watch the evolution just since in the last handful of years, because mm-hmm. I mean, I, I came from school districts, got my master's, went straight into a CF at a rural hospital. And then mm-hmm. My husband, he Christian was a West Pointer, and then when he got out of the army, he got, he was out before me. He went into engineering, and mm-hmm. he found an amazing opportunity in South Carolina. So, like literally in six weeks, our whole life was me and him and dog, and hightailed it to South Carolina on a Friday the thirteenth. And I was like, either this is going to be a good move or a really bad move, and it's been really it's good. Be memorable either way. <laughs> yes, yes. But I treated all adult head and neck cancer, adult patients, dysphagia, strokes, and did in the morning, inpatient, and then outpatient in the afternoon. It was so rural. I had to be a jack or technically a Jill of all trades, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but moved into early intervention. And I just couldn't find a hospital job. It's super, you know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody went to school here and I'm an outsider. Right, right, right. Yep. Got into early intervention and I started treating all these peeps dysphagia classes or kids. Mm -hmm. And so sought out a mentor, some coworkers that I worked with. And what I thought I saw was best Mm -hmm. practice because what I thought I saw was, you know, my friends vibrating kids' faces that were Mm nonverbal and Mm -hmm. drooling and biting on things and all these things were happening. And I was like, well, it's got, it looks like it's doing stuff. This has to have great evidence behind it. And then uh-huh. a mom asked me point blank said, so why are you doing that to my daughter? And uh-huh. my response was, well, I'm waking up her face. And she deadpan looked at me and we were the same age. And this was her fourth child. And uh-huh. she goes, but Ms. Michelle, she's already awake. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, snap. Ooh. Oh, I don't like that. I can't answer that question. And then, right. and then that's how I started hitting books, joining SIG 13. And mm-hmm. it also, it's interesting that you said it earlier with your own children. It coincided with the birth of my firstborn and mm-hmm. who's eight. Oh, Yvette, he's about to turn nine. I am not okay. <laughs> but like, but like uh-huh. there we are. Oh, he's got a crush too, but he'd kill me if I talked about that. All right. So yeah. anyways, like that happened and that started my process on, I need to critically reassess what I'm doing. So, mm-hmm. and what I found was not much. And what I can tell you now Asha has stepped it up. We have a much better practice portal. We we have a practice mm-hmm. portal. We've gotten right. huge changes, but what are, can you take us through some of the trends, busts and myths for us and lead us on the path to the right direction? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think when you were talking about using vibration and other things to, mm-hmm. to wake up the face, and I like how you said the 
the mom asked you about that and, and you gave this answer. And I think I heard in your response that you also were like, wait a minute, wake Post up. <laughs> what, what am I talking about? <laughs> so sometimes we learn these things and we say these things. And until you're faced with a moment where someone says, but what does that mean? We don't yeah. always think through them. And I, I think we're doing a better job of that now. And we have certainly more critical thinking happening at the graduate level, I think, than perhaps maybe we have in the past. Our, the students mm-hmm. that I work with do a fantastic job of asking these kinds of questions. And I see it in clinicians as well, instead of just you know stopping or listening quietly through a presentation or through a conference meeting, those kinds of things, people are asking questions and that's that's going to help get us to where we're going. I think we see a shift also in the type of dysphagia, like the pathophysiology, the, the reason why kids are having yes. difficulty with feeding and swallowing. And so that also requires a shift in the way that it's managed. A lot of the early publications on pediatric dysphagia dealt specifically with kids that had cerebral palsy and kids that had craniofacial anomaly or kids that had genetic syndrome. So a lot of the work was around oral motor type activities. And now in the populations that we work with, specifically in NICU populations, we see this shift from children being born prematurely and having like an IVH or an other type uh, other types of neurologically involved issues that happen as a result of that prematurity uh, because we have better protocols. There are cooling protocols and there are other things that are being done in the NICU that are helping to manage the stress that was severely impacting the neurologic system. And so instead, and so because of that, now we see children born much earlier that are viable at 22 and 23 weeks gestation. And so we don't see the same impact on the neurologic system in some cases, but we do see this big impact on the respiratory system. And so the difficulty that we see in a lot of our young children, our young infants in the NICU, and then as they survive and grow, has to do with the coordination between sucking, swallowing, and breathing, right? It's more of a coordination Mm -hmm. issue versus a motor issue. And so the way then it has to be managed is different as as a result of the underlying cause there. So I think that has also helped to point us away from some pat things that we used to do in the past with everybody that had some kind of feeding or swallowing difficulty. And I see that in adult populations too. I remember being a grad student and being handed a, you know, a sheet of oral motor exercises that I was supposed to go do with patients that had some sort, some kind of dysphagia or being Sorry, in <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> or being in rehab dining settings, you know, where uh-huh. you would you're supposed to watch Everybody All of the people. Yeah. I mean, we know better now. And 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 so that helps to push the practice forward. And I think a lot of that comes with the focus on the why. Kids just don't have feeding and swallowing problems for no reason. There has yes. to be an underlying reason for that because dysphagia is not a standalone diagnosis. It's always a symptom of something else. And so getting to the understand what the something else is guides our treatment path. And I, I think, yes. I think, I hope that's, that's what, why we see this shift in our practice pattern. Yes. Yes. You have to know the physiology and mm-hmm. if you don't, and folks, here's the thing, you won't always, you get a kid, you have a referral. Maybe it's a nine month old, maybe it's a 
I don't know, a 24 month old. Mm-hmm. And they say, now they can say pediatric feeding disorders or health right. bells. What if it's a three-year-old and they're described as a quote unquote picky eater, but then mm-hmm. they come to you and they're open mouth breathing and they have a rash and oh, by the way, they, you know, they have a hard time pooping. Mom sometimes has to give them prunes. Sometimes it's in the bottle if it's the nine month old. Sometimes it's in a sippy cup or mom just pumps apple juice in and Y'all, they just hit on three potential very different etiologies and or comorbidities. You could have celiac disease, EOE, Mm -hmm. aerodigestive tract issues. But Mm -hmm. even if you have one answer, sometimes I just had a little one diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at four Mm -hmm. years of age, and it's in her left jaw. Mm Mm-hmm. I, Which comes also with just, you know, generalized inflammation as well. So there are so many areas that could then be impacting the way that she eats. And yes. you bring up a beautiful example of why what we do has to be multidisciplinary, right? It can't yes. just be us as a speech pathologist with our speech pathology lens looking at children. It has to be more diverse than that. And it can't stop with an abnormal video fluoroscopic study or an abnormal fees. And I say, well, they're aspirating. So come back again in six months. Yes. What is the point of doing that again if if nothing has changed in that six months, right? So Mm -hmm. we've got, we have to be better investigators and collaborators with our multidisciplinary teams, even if we're not all in the same building, because that that has been my experience coming out of a a pediatric hospital where we had access to all kinds of different specialists. We had OT, we had PT, we had GI, we had pulmonary, we had nutrition, we had all these people in the same building that you could call on. And then I came to an outpatient setting in a city where there's not a children's hospital. The need for that multidisciplinary input didn't go away, but my ability to access those people became a lot more complicated. So I've seen both sides of that in my own clinical practice. And it just underscores for me the importance of that because we need all of that input to get to the root of the issue to then make a difference for the child we're working with. Yes. Yes. Okay. So what advice do you have for the new clinician or, I mean, and it could be a CF or what if it's a clinician that's transitioning from one setting to now taking on PFD and Pete's swallowing. Okay. Also y'all PFD, you can have pediatric dysphagia underneath of the overarching umbrella of PFD. Right. That's that's allowed. That that's okay. Yeah. So if, if you're dropping ICD ten codes and you have R thirteen twelve followed by what is it R sixty three point two chronic, that mm. that's allowed. So uh-huh. just to clear, folks have come with questions on that. But what advice do you have for those that are trying to discern how do I find current evidence based treatment and then follow that with well how do I engage in in a professional practice if I'm afraid to call. So two very different questions, but both I would love to hear your answers on. Yeah. So starting with like the, the new clinician piece, I think that's what our CFY was designed for is so that we are practicing still under the guidance of someone with more experience to help us with that part of things, like knowing when to call, knowing when to refer, those kinds of pieces. But we don't always land in a situation where you have 
someone that you're working with that has worked in pediatric dysphagia, has worked with kids with PFD. So when I was looking for resources there, uh, at the time it was called Division 13. It's now called SIG 13. That was a big help for me. Not necessarily the boards, the communication, what are they called, where they you can post things and send it out. We get just the summary of it at the end of the day. Oh, hold on. I can tell, I get them in my email. Yeah. So not necessarily that piece of it, but reaching out to other members of SIG 13. Because Sorry. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Arvidson is in that group. Dr. Leftengreif is in that group. Catherine Shaker is in that group. So, and just reaching out to ask questions, not necessarily about specific patients, you know, like I have this kid that does da, 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 not that, but asking information about EOE, asking where you can find information about thickened liquids and, and specific products and those kinds of things. So using that community as a community, right? So going to the programs that are sponsored by SIG13 and participating in their web chats, volunteering through that group, I think is really helpful. Looking for your community resources, who is managing kids with feeding and swallowing difficulties where you are, right? So wherever we are, there's likely a pediatrician's office, et cetera. And so setting up conversations with them to ask about that. I'll tell you when I moved to Tuscaloosa and I was having my interview with the faculty and staff here and I was talking about pediatric dysphagia and you know what I had done clinically in the past and those kinds of things. And they listened and they're like, huh, we don't have anybody in Tuscaloosa with those issues. <laughs> I don't know if they said that exact same thing, but like that was the gist of it. Like, oh, that's cute. That's We don't have that. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that will be a short-lived career then if there's nobody in this area with that issue. But sure, I mean, as soon as I got here, right, like within three months of being in the area and making connections with pediatricians and, and with our local hospital and that kind of thing, um, people started to emerge and referrals started to come in with my child has this issue. We're concerned about picky eating or we're concerned about other aspects of nutrition and those kinds of things. So I think where you are figuring out who's managing that in your area and then connecting with them. If you need mentorship, there are some programs that are in place for pediatric dysphagia. Like you you can take a class in the area. There are certainly lots of good resources, I think, on the internet that are both paid sources of information, but then also open access articles mm-hmm. using PubMed. I did that as a as a new clinician when I was learning that all the clients that I was working with were not parents were not so concerned about late talking. They were really concerned about the fact that they weren't eating like their other children. So using PubMed to set up alerts around certain, you know, keywords and and specific authors and those kinds of things so that you're getting alerted to when things are published. We have more open access articles now than we used to. Mm -hmm. So certainly that makes things a little easier. Sources of information like the informed SLP. I know that that is... Yeah, that's a that's a paid service, but it provides evidence-based information summarized by experts in the field and it gives you that, you know, that summary information which is helpful especially if you can't access the the full article or or have access to evidence 
from journals on a regular basis. I would also say if people are in hospital settings, if they're in a teaching hospital, it's likely that they could access articles that way. But I also understand that, I mean, people don't always have time to read and do those things. So using a service like the Informed SLP could be helpful there. Mentoring relationships. If people are interested in doing board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, they offer a mentorship program where they can connect you with someone um, that will help you achieve or come up with a plan to help you achieve that board certification there. So that's another way to make connections with other swallowing specialists that they might be able to help point you towards mentorship in those areas. It's a tough thing. And it's a lot. I think it's also really tough because a lot of our students here want to come out and go straight into hospital setting. Hospitals usually require some level of previous year's experience in a hospital setting. And so then that becomes a limiting factor for for landing that, that job that you want. I mean, what was your experience there? How do you guide your students in that area? A whole lot better than how I just kind of guinea pig my way through it. That would be a very professional (laughs) response. I, all of the above. Yeah. My stars have been very blessed that brilliant leaders in the field, I've had opportunities to engage and enact with them. And, And that's one of the things, honestly, why I do this is so that we can, we don't always have time to read and synthesize the information. So I try to reach out to the researchers that are doing their research. I mean, we had Dr. Georgia Melendrecki on a couple Mm -hmm. of months back and my mind was just like blown. And after the interview, I joined Dysphagia Research Society because I thought I had to be a researcher and I'm not. That opportunity has not yet happen in my life. Mm-hmm. But again, third message, heard it duly noted. So, <laughs> okay, Jesus, moving on. But <laughs> I do that. And I find myself when we have a new case come in, like I have a little guy who has a cardiac condition and uh, mm-hmm. you know, status post repaired, but then unilateral left focal fold paralysis and yep. you, you know, the whole shebang. And I'm like, all right, so I need you to go back and listen to this episode where I interviewed this cardiac I see you SLP on this treatment and she's from Levine and she's amazing. But Mm -hmm. that has, this has kind of turned into a tool for me. Mm -hmm. And then Dysphagia Research Society, Mm -hmm. sorry, Dr. Goose, I have a fair amount of ADD and ADHD, which is why these are always so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) So There's lots of answers to that question for sure. It's not always the the answer that students want to hear. And I I recognize that. And and you hit on it too. Like we both came from situations where we had mentors available to us that were accessible. And when you're in smaller, more rural populations, I know that that's not always the case. Yes. Yes. And I have thoroughly enjoyed the evolution of the SIG 13 chat box or Mm -hmm. the community page. And Mm -hmm. I've seen more theoretical case studies come through. I mean, even Mm -hmm. within the last year or two, and that's been, please don't post a question on Facebook. That's the piece Mm -hmm. that I get back to. Do not post a picture of a child's supposed tethered oral tissue issue because that just crosses a lot of boundaries, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does. First and foremost, HIPAA second function. We cannot Mm -hmm. diagnose a tie without knowing its implication in, in functionality and, right. and, and that's so inappropriate. And 
also the research out there that supports how this is so far down on the pecking order of primary mm-hmm. etiologies. When it is, it is. I'll give it credit, right? But I, well, what was that one article? It was like less than 21% or 23% actually needed to be resected and everything else needed. Yeah. A lot of it, you know, is from breastfeeding literature and the impact is on comfort for the mom, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily improved feeding function for the baby and, and mother's comfort is absolutely valid. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, but again, just it's low on the pecking order <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of possible causes and functional gains to be made when the infant undergoes a, a procedure like that. Mm-hmm. One, Dr. Greenhouse, she's a pediatrician here in the local Midlands area, and Mm -hmm. she also sits on the national board for pediatricians. And we were fortunate enough to have her at Skisha a couple years ago. Sorry, South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association. Skisha! Uh She was speaking during our award ceremony. She was our keynote speaker, and she was talking about TOTS and how, and she said, we do not fully understand the impact of the and I can't say this word, burgeoning, grow. It like means growing, emerging. Uh-huh. She said it a fancy way, but again, not the multisyllabic articulator. And <laughs> she said, we don't understand the impact that we're having on that new neural network when we take a days old infant and mm-hmm. do a procedure like that. And right. she was like, and we may never. She was like, but here's where the research sits. And then she just laid out all the stats on like, why we needed to do X, Y, and Z and the prevalence of laryngomalacia and bronchomalacia that have tracheomalacia that have gone missed. And and I was just like, and I was sitting in the audience just clapping. It was like, best award ceremony. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nice to be validated. Isn't it? When you hear someone else say the things that you also have experienced in your practice. Yes. But like when they do it with evidence, also I get concerned that because I am comfortable in my own skin enough to say the hard things, and it has taken counseling and recovery from a very violent ex-husband to get to that point, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to stand on the evidence. And mm-hmm. if that, but when we do that, we shouldn't be a bully, right? Like right. that's, yeah. and that's a perception that some people develop when, the folks that are clamoring for evidence, 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 the perception by some is that, okay, but you're bullying and intimidating me. No, that's what my chair calls sitting in the uncomfortable. And when you're in the uncomfortable, you can either choose to change and progress or you can regress and hide. So Mm. I thought that was a really good analogy. Kind of made me think of a turtle, but like, (laughs) yeah, pull it all in and just wait for it to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in evidence-based practice, right. There's three prongs to that stool if we use that analogy and mm-hmm. there's published evidence there's patient and family preferences and responsiveness to what is important to them and then there's your clinical experience and so there's room for all three of those things at the table i'm always leery of anything that is presented in the world of pediatric dysphagia that's a quick fix like oh you yeah. just do this and it's done and i think that that has not been one single kid that i have ever worked with where it has been one quick fix and they're out the door, you know? <sighs> Although I think insurance would love it if we came to that resolution. Yeah, so would everybody's manager who's monitoring their productivity. They would love it <laughs> if it was one quick thing and we could send them on their way. 
Oh, oh my God. Okay. All right. So for the IPP, folks, this is, if you're new and you're ready and you're ready to take the leap towards engaging in a professional practice, here's my one quick tip. Before you pick up the phone to call the pediatrician's office or the referral source, whether that be like the GI or whomever, but typically it's a pediatrician's office, make sure you write down who you want to ask for, like which interprofessional partner you want to refer to and the why. Short, Mm -hmm. sweet, abrupt. Mm -hmm. And I typically ask for the nurse because to quote my big fat Greek wedding and my baby sister who is a nurse, the physician may be the head, but it's the nurse that knows which way they'll turn and or can influence the turnage. Okay, so there's there's my advice. What IPP advice do you have, ma'am? <laughs> I think SLPs, myself included, especially as a really young SLP in a hospital setting, was in, intimidated by people I thought knew more than I did. Yes. So every physician, every specialist, he's a neurosurgeon. He just, you know, performed surgery this morning and now I'm calling to bother him about this question. But that's not true, right? Sometimes we tell ourselves things and we think these things are true, but everyone that is part of the multidisciplinary care team for that child looks at what's happening and looks at their function from a specific lens. And it is the blending of those lenses that brings into focus the issue at hand, right? And what needs to be done across all of our different areas. So for me, what I talk about in class and what I talk about with our students is that we need to not be intimidated about reaching out to the other members of the team. And speech pathologists are uniquely trained with both the anatomy and physiology knowledge around feeding and swallowing, but also that communication aspect. And especially in our really young patients, young clients that we're working with, they often don't have the language piece to communicate, but but every action, every behavior is a communication. And so I think we're uniquely trained in this area to provide great insight. And so reaching out to our multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary teams to represent our view and to gather the additional pieces of information is vital and it's it's what we're supposed to do. And so there is no there shouldn't be this bit of intimidation or hesitation about reaching out to our multidisciplinary teams, our interprofessional teams, right? That's what we're here for. And I think because of our unique training, we are often in the role of case manager around pediatric dysphagia and pediatric mm-hmm. feeding disorders, we're gathering the information from all the different sides. So it's a, an important role and it's not something that we need to be intimidated about, I guess. That's something that wasn't covered when I went to grad school, how much parent coaching and just coaching in general I would be doing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I feel like a huge chunk of what I do professionally with my patients is counseling. Mm-hmm. And I know when we truly engage in family guided routine based intervention, that that's mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be doing. But right. Was given like a dime tap size dose of that in grad school and mm-hmm. evolved slightly. And now that I'm out in the world, sorry, everybody just had head colds. So this is fresh in my mind. We're on like the NyQuil dose level. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yeah. 
One of my very dear friends, Dr. Tessa Gonzalez, Dr. Gosa, her and I have done podcast episodes together. Mm -hmm. She's a guest speaker for, oh my gosh, Real Food Blends. And she's done webinars and volunteers with Feeding Matters. She's wonderful. She's a pediatrician and has her own little one with special needs. And she's a brilliant pediatrician. She went to Harvard, then she went to U of SC for her doctorate and a brilliant woman. And she said, they get zero folks. Listen for this zero training on peds feeding disorders and maybe a couple of minutes on dysphagia and all of their training, all of their experiences. And then they're sent off to a pediatrician's office to work. And she was like, all of a sudden, all these kids won't eat. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So then I put that back on us. Right. Right. One of the students that I worked with here did a, oh, her master's thesis where she was working with some folks in nursing. And so she did a survey of NICU nurses, right? And asked them about the training that they had in pediatric dysphagia or recognizing feeding and swallowing problems in infant populations. They don't. The overwhelming majority of the respondents to that survey had not had any special training in that. And a lot of their knowledge was gained from working with infants in the NICU, you know, just years of experience feeding infants, their own children, those sorts of things. And that was the foundation for their knowledge about feeding and swallowing. So we have unique perspective. We have specialized training in this area. And so we are set up to be a valuable member of that multidisciplinary team. And the outcomes of the the kids that we work with depend on us making those connections. And talking to the other members of our team to bring into focus what the issue at heart is and how best to manage it. So, and this leads nicely to the wrap up portion of today's episode, folks, but I have not yet mustered the muchness to put in a proposal for the South Carolina Pediatricians Association conference, Mm -hmm. but like, I feel like we need to. And Because I really feel like that will be the icebreaker to how Mm -hmm. we can work to resolve it here, at least in in my little state. I mean, I feel like DRS is a great opportunity. I'm finally getting to go. I get to go next year and I'm so excited. But I mean, do you see opportunity? Thank you. Because I was worried. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all the money. And then I'm not a PhD and is it going to be good? So yes. I went as a clinician right before I got into PhD study and so went as, you know, a clinician absorbing and listening and, and trying to understand what was coming next, right? Understanding the research before it's published and, and hearing it and having an opportunity to talk with those researchers. So I think if you are interested in evidence-based practice, if you are committed to dysphagia, then DRS is a terrific opportunity to learn with those professionals. Excellent. Do you see that many pediatricians at DRS or how else can we impact? Because I feel like they're my gatekeepers. I feel like they're the gatekeepers to the referrals for these kids. Yes. So pediatrician specific at DRS, not necessarily. I do see more like pulmonology and GI level physicians at that at that meeting. Last year, I had the opportunity to speak on a panel at the American Academy of Pediatrics that was specific to PFD. So Dr. Praveen Godet was the organizer of that panel. And so I got to talk about the oral skill area, you know, that's part of that PFD diagnosis. So that was one opportunity. I think us putting in presentations that are 
focused towards our pediatrician colleagues is a useful way to do that. I think talking to the pediatricians in your area, providing them with some of the tools from Feeding Matters, like their PFD toolkit that they just developed and is freely available on their website. Introducing pediatricians in your area to those resources is really helpful. There's a quick six-question screener that the group that Feeding Matters developed about PFD that could be administered, you know, in in the pediatrician's office. Pediatricians have a huge task because they have to screen and recognize all the things that can happen in early childhood and and adolescence. And so I am sympathetic to that, that they are always constantly being asked to do more, to screen more, to be aware of more. But reaching out to the ones in your area, making them aware of the resources that are there, I think it goes a long way for sure. Excellent. Yes. All right. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tag Erin. I'm going to rope her in on this one. <laughs> and then we'll do Okay. All right. So tomorrow we get to drive, travel, commute, fly, maybe go by boat. Hopefully nobody's going by boat to Washington, D.C. I don't think that would be a, the safest route, but the convention starts. Yep. So lay it on us because I know some of the trends in the planning committee we're making sure that we talked about the new codes, about getting current evidence. And, and so talk to us about like some of your must-see, all the things. Yes, fill us in. So one of the topics that we've mentioned here already around tethered oral tissues and evidence for that, the topic committee put together a program with Dr. Mills. It'll be in the virtual library. She is a physician who has written extensively about breastfeeding and the impact of tethered oral tissues and phenylectomy and all of those things. So she's going to give us a a one hour presentation. It'll be in the virtual library on that topic. So we are thrilled that she could be with us this year because she's based out of, I believe it's in New Zealand. If it weren't for the hybrid convention format this year, then we wouldn't have a chance to hear from her. So I'm excited about the fact that she's going to be with us and I'm looking forward to hearing her presentation. There's also a whole masterclass that is designed around pediatric feeding disorder. So it's called Pediatric Feeding Disorder Diagnosis and the New PFD ICD Code, a panel discussion. And it includes a lot of the original authors of the PFD paper or the consensus paper where they laid out the diagnosis criteria. So it will include Pamela Dodrell, Amy Delaney, Joan Arvidson, Praveen Godier, Alan Silverman, Mary Beth Feeling, and Jacqueline Peterson. And Jacqueline, of course, is from Feeding Matters. So that is a two-hour masterclass presentation that will be on Thursday, November 18th at 1.30. So right as soon as convention starts that afternoon, these guys will be up and they're going to give us all the information there about PFD. So it's a multidisciplinary panel expert feeding clinicians and physicians and parent advocates are going to talk in depth about PFD and how to apply and use that new PFD ICD code. So I'm really excited about that one as well. There's another masterclass that's co-sponsored by our committee along with SIG-13 and the adult swallowing track for convention as well. And it's the use of high-resolution pharyngeal manometry and dysphagia assessment and treatment across the lifespan. 
and it yes. will feature Melissa Cook, Ashley O'Rourke, Kara Fletcher, and Rachel Rosen. So experts in this area, including a GI physician there, they're going to talk us through the use of high-resolution pharyngeal manometry as part of a comprehensive evaluation of swallow function in the adult and pediatric population. So it's an advanced level session that's going to provide us with insight into the applications of this technology across the lifespan and give us information on how to establish a similar interprofessional team-based approach to the use of technology within our home institutions. So those are our two master classes that we'll have to look forward to. There's other ones that I want to highlight that will be happening one hour in-person classes. So Rising United to provide a continuum of services for for PFD, ICU, early intervention to school. So that is Emily Homer, Nina Ferguson, and Raquel Garcia. And yeah. this was also developed by our program. We're trying to make sure that we're covering all the different practice areas or as many of the different practice areas as we can to provide good information um, for clinicians across sort of the spectrum of practice. So they're going to talk through pediatric feeding disorders, strategies for improving care as children move from the ICU through the early intervention system and then eventually into the school setting. And so expert clinicians all the way across the board to talk to us about that. And I don't want to forget anything, so I'm checking my list. We also have a two-part session, pediatric cardiac and pulmonary feeding and swallowing, an interdisciplinary approach that will be on, it'll be presented in two parts. They're both one hour. So we'll do a one hour, you'll have a small break. And then the second part will be presented. And that is being presented by Britt Pados, Catherine Ingstler, Claire Miller, Daniel Benscotter, and Karen Rizzo from Boston Children's Hospital, Boston's College of Nursing, and Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. So also a terrific interdisciplinary presentation there. Awesome. Did I cover all the things? Help me remember to leave anybody out. All the things, but I have a question because this is the conundrum that I have found myself and this is foolhardy because I should know the answer to this, but there are some live classes that I want to go to that I'm worried Will I have time to squeak in the virtual? Like, can we do both? Like, do you know the answer to this question? That's a terrific question that I'm not 100% sure of. I know the virtual sessions open November 15th, right? So they've been open for a while now by the time this goes to publication. So we can participate in the virtual sessions beginning November 15th, but then I think they wrap at the same time as convention. Ah, I did forget one. And I want to make sure we talk about it because it's the it's for our grad students. It's called Crash Course in Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorder, Foundations of Assessment and Treatment. So Caitlin McGratton, Donna Scarborough, and Ramya Kumar are presenting this, and it's specifically geared towards our new clinicians and clinicians Excellent. in grad school to lay some foundational information for practice in this area. So we're excited about that one too, because again, we wanted to make sure we hit as many areas and as many types of clinicians, new expert, intermediate, in between uh, as we could and provide just a well-rounded presentation experience this year. Excellent. Y'all did a smashing job. Uh, You were on this committee, right? So we all (laughs) were fortunate to be able to come together 
talk about all these different things and then find people who are willing to share of their time, experience and expertise in these areas. So I'm thrilled to, to hear this information this year. And there's great presentations that, you know, are not put together by the topic committee. We really had just a very competitive year in terms of the number of proposals that came in. So it it was a good year. I think we're going to have a great program of information to learn with this year. Yes, it is awesome. So Dr. Gosa, on behalf of all of us on this side of it, that are like going to geek out. Yay! I'm so happy. Thank you very, very much. If folks, as always, don't forget, wait, I forgot. Swing by the Speech Therapy PD booth, bring your copy of Chasing the Swallow. I don't know in this very second what time I will be there, but I'm sure it's posted somewhere on an Instagram or social media account, but stop by, say hi, and remember to advocate. So uh, everybody, thank you for tuning in and enjoy ASHA. Enjoy growing your evidence-based triangle and don't let your stool teeter-totter one way or the other. (laughs) And don't forget from Feeding Matters, the caregivers are key. So that one little peg there, if the patient can't convey their wishes, their caregivers probably can't. So don't dismiss that piece. So yes. All right, Dr. Gosa, thank you. Oh, no, thank you for the opportunity. I told you when you emailed me about this, I wasn't sure because I've never done anything like this before, (laughs) mostly because I'm old, but I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And you were right. It was not scary. I appreciate the opportunity to talk through my experiences in this area and to also learn about your experiences in this area too. So thanks for that. Thanks. Absolutely. Feeding Matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. 
I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.